This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Since October 7th of last year, all eyes have been on the conflict in Israel-Palestine between the Israeli military and Hamas. The conflict in the Middle East displaced the previous attention, at least in the West, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as well as to conflicts in Sudan, Syria, Yemen, and other countries around the world. Indeed, it seems that war is very much back on our minds and on our radar. What's happened? My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate School of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. And we're fortunate to have with us today Nita Crawford, who is the Montague Burton Chair in International Relations and a professorial fellow uh, at Balliol College at Oxford University. Her research focuses on war, ethics, normative change, emotions in world politics, and climate change. She was elected a member of both the British Academy and of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2023. In 2018, she received the Distinguished Scholar Award from the International Ethics Section of the International Studies Association, and she was previously a co-winner of the 2003 American Political Science Association Jervis and Schroeder Award for Best Book in International History and Politics for her book, Argument and Change in World Politics, Ethics, Decolonization, Humanitarian Intervention, published by Cambridge University Press in 2002. Nita Crawford is co-founder and co-director of the Costs of War Project, which is based at Brown University. Her opinion pieces have appeared in the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us today, Nita Crawford. Happy to be with you. So you're involved uh, with an ongoing research project, as I've mentioned, uh, based at Brown University and called the Costs of War Project. And maybe we could just start by having you tell us a little bit about what that uh, that, that enterprise does. The Costs of War Project began in 2010 as an effort to understand the human, economic, political, 
costs and consequences of the post 9-11 wars begun by the United States after the attack of September 11. So the project involved from the beginning an interdisciplinary group of scholars looking at these various aspects of the post 9-11 wars and has continued since then to publish short papers and analyses which have been used by policymakers and journalists to understand the many consequences of any war, but in particular these wars. And what we hoped was that it would be a way to broaden the conversation away from just, for instance, looking at the budgetary costs of the US war in Iraq and Afghanistan or looking at the number of uh, soldiers who were killed or injured, but to have a larger conversation about costs and consequences of war. So um, it sounds like it's a very interdisciplinary kind of project. I mean, costs is a term that we usually associate with economists, but that's obviously not the only uh, participant in this. Uh, or are there are there in fact economists involved as well? Right, there are economists. We have uh, Linda Bilmes, who's at Harvard University, Heidi Peltier, who was then at the University of Massachusetts, who's now at Brown, uh, and other economists involved in the project, but we've also had political scientists, anthropologists, historians, um, physicians, and journalists as well engaged in the project. There have been attorneys at times looking at diff different elements of the way and the consequences of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then broadening out to other war zones as well. I see. So I mean, one of the things that has to be sorted out when you undertake a, a scholarly effort of this sort is, you know, what exactly is a war? How, how do you define a war uh, at the Costs of War project? And, you know, how much of it would you say is around these days? Well, social scientists have a kind of standard definition of war, which is um, back in the 60s, 70s and 80s was a thousand battle deaths. And that came from the Coral. It's a war project. And a, a thousand since battle then, deaths over what period of time? You know, I, I think it was indefinite, though. That's a good question. Um, and then I over thought, time, I thought it was for per year, but perhaps. Yeah, I don't I don't remember. Yeah, that's I a good see. question. OK, um, you know, some some conflicts that are significant never rise that high. But mostly it's sustained conflict between two organized groups, two or more organized groups. That's how I understand it. And, and it's sustained armed conflict. Right. So, um, I mean, I guess my perception is certainly a non-specialist in this, but my perception is that, you know, in the post-Cold War period, after more or less the fall of the Berlin Wall or the collapse of the Soviet Union, great great power conflict declined in favor of what I guess are generally called internal wars uh, that have had you know relatively low levels of casualties compared to wars between major powers. And then of course, all that changed with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and of course may get worse if the possible conflicts between China and the United States that some are worried about actually materialize. So is that you know the way you understand the trajectory in the, the, the last 30 or so years? Um, and you know, if so, like 
what's going on. I mean, have I described correctly that it basically is about the decline of great power conflict? Right. So after the end of the Cold War, it does look like what you said in, in terms of, uh, you know, interventions by the great powers and um, direct conflict between states declined somewhat. There was a decline in interstate war. Then there was an increase in what was called intrastate war or civil conflict of some kind, uh, which then now, you know, in 2024, the incidence of interstate war and intrastate war is about the same. So there's been an increase in both kinds of conflict in the, you know, roughly the last 10 years or so. Right. So, uh, I mean, what would you say is going on? I mean, why is it, uh, I mean, at some level, obviously the major conflict in the world before 19, whatever, 92 was the, that between the USSR and the United States and their various allies, I suppose. But, um, you know, what exactly, what happened to change the kind of the, the count of different kinds of wars and, and of the resulting, you know, costs of war? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I actually think about this a lot. For mm-hmm. one thing, I, I think that there was a kind of constraining effect of the great powers um, in the sense that when the United States and the Soviet Union were in their Cold War, there uh, was kind of a, a regional um, sphere of influence that sort of kept conflict down. Um, you know, for instance, in, in Eastern Europe and um, also in the Western Hemisphere and in Africa, there, you know, there was Cold War conflict and certainly a, a lot of um, deaths if you're living in a, a place like Vietnam where the Cold War exploded into a hot war. But um, there was a sort of constraining effect of, of the two great powers. And, um, I, you know, I also think that some of the norms that we had um, is constraining conflict sort of uh, eroded in a sense. You know, there, there's a book by Mary Calder called New and Old Wars, and she argues that there was a kind of new identity war that came to the fore in the late 1990s. And these are the new wars. And the old wars were about territory and, and ideology and so on. I, I think that we're fighting a bit different things in the 21st century. And in general, though, I think even though there are more wars, most of the wars in the recent years have been smaller in scale in terms of people killed. So, you know, it's a kind of good news, bad news story. Yes, there's more conflict in the last decade. There's about 50 armed conflicts each year in the last decade. But uh, in many instances, the number of people killed are smaller than in previous decades. And maybe that's um, you know, too little comfort. Some long-term conflicts have been resolved. For instance, you know, there was peace in uh, Northern Ireland that's been enduring since the 1990s. Um, there is now peace of a sort in uh, Kosovo and Bosnia. So some, some things have settled. And uh, of course, other conflicts have not been resolved. For instance, the Israeli 
Palestinian conflict. Right. So, I mean, I think you just said that we're fighting about or over other things now, uh, but which I think you meant, you know, after the Cold War. Could you say a little bit more about what that, uh, you know, what that's about, if I understood you correctly? Yeah, I th well, Caldor's argument is that we're fighting over identity. Um, I think a lot of war is about legitimation crises. In, in the sense that, you know, domestic conflicts are sometimes about um, uh, who deserves to be in power and the lack of recognition of, of a people. Um, and sometimes uh, international conflicts are about um, that and that, that may spill um, over into hot cold conflicts, spilling over into hot conflicts are also about domestic legitimation crises, you know, proving um, that you deserve to be on top. So, for example, um, in North Korea, the North Korean regime essentially doesn't have a lot going for it in terms of um, prosperity for its people. But what it does have is a consistent enemy, you know, South Korea and the United States. And that's how it maintains its legitimacy. So, in part, how it maintains its legitimacy to the extent that it has some. So I think some of these conflicts are actually driven by very complex internal dynamics. And um, that's some of what's going on. I also think that in recent years, um, what we've seen internally in countries is what some social scientists call democratic backsliding or um, you know, a weakening of democratic norms. And the way I look at it, democracy is kind of the antipodal breaks for conflict and war. In other words, um, it's kind of like uh, Kant's democratic peace, that the more the country is governed by the norms of democratic or nonviolent conflict, resolution, the less likely it is to see international uses of force as legitimate. And the more breaks there are internally on going to war. But the democratic backsliding that we've seen, that is the diminution of democratic norms of the peaceful resolution of internal conflicts has, I think, coincided with uh, uh, increased willingness to use force abroad. Now, that's just my impression. Um, there's a lot of social science that would either be used to prove or disprove those that those correlations are actually causal. But I think we need to think in at least political science terms uh, about breaking apart the sharp distinction between international relations and uh, domestic politics and look at how the uh, uses of force that we see in the world are driven by domestic dynamics and how the international conflicts change the politics of the societies that are engaged in them. I see. So we have to look at the inside to understand the outside more than we've been doing. I, I think both. Something I think they're, like they're interrelated. Right. I see. So I, I did want to go back, though, to something else you said, which was, uh, if I understood correctly, you know, you were arguing that that during the Cold War, there was a kind of balance of power 
and there were two sides that kind of had their hinterlands or their you know uh, areas of regional hegemony that they kept more or less out of conflict is that yeah is that i think that's true I, I, yeah yeah to a certain extent um you know but there, in europe uh, mm -hmm. at the same time of the cold war there is the development of a european identity and essentially a european zone of peace uh, a, a kind of um, with the European community, which is an economic and political union, uh, increase in the belief that you don't have to, in fact, resolve conflicts through violence. You can um, trade peacefully and uh, work together to advance your goals um, of human rights, um, democracy, trade, you know, general prosperity. And that is a post-World War II development that I think is very positive. So, you know, if we look back 100 years uh, or 150 years, there was more conflict in Europe than there is, certainly is today. Of course, there are exceptions to that. And one of the reasons why um, we see the uh, conflict increased in um, the former Soviet Union is because of this notion that Putin's advanced and I think sincerely believes that uh, Russia was once a great power, deserves to be uh, an enormous and important influential power in the world today. And they're sort of looking to reproduce that um, imperial vision and reality. And um, that wasn't necessary during the Cold War because they already had control of that sphere, right? So what they're trying to do to get back to the, the uh, pre-post-Cold War period, if that makes sense. Right. Well, but the world has changed in the meantime. And, you know, what you say about Russia seems to me correct. But at the same time, there's another sort of major power on the scene which is of course china and so i wonder you know how would you describe the world scene today insofar as you saw a certain you know virtue uh in the you know the situation that obtained during the cold war that you know yeah. kept certain things in check i understand to right. keep everything in check but but how do we how should we think about the world as it's currently mm -hmm. developing well, first of all, I don't want to give the impression that I, I saw the Cold War as all rosy. Um, it wasn't if you were in Vietnam or Korea, for example, the, the two major um, post-World War II conflicts where, you know, the great powers were playing out their desire to dominate or at least not to lose uh, prestige. Um, but, you know, China's rise is really interesting and important in this sense. The United States sees China as, I think, primarily an economic rival, but it does look to China's aspirations to control Taiwan and say, there's a, a manifest um, desire to take control of Taiwan, to uh, make uh, you know, the revolution complete in a sense, and sees that as a threat that, that must be countered with increased military forces in the Far East and the Pacific, and sees the Chinese economic activity as part of this aggressive design of China. 
I, I don't see China's economic um, activity, its growth and its alliances, the Belt and Road Initiative, any of that as a strategic military threat. And I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we look at Chinese growth and say, well, that is, um, you know, they're coming for us. Uh, that's a real threat. But I do see that uh, it's important for Taiwan to remain independent. And it has been important for the United States to be willing to back up um, Chinese, uh, the Tai Taiwanese rather independence. Um, China has been deterred from aggression in Taiwan. They may well have learned from the Russian experience in Ukraine that taking and holding territory against the people who are determined to have you not hold their territory is very difficult. And that I think um, is the proper lesson to learn from the Russian experience. So I, I think that there, we're, uh, you know, looking at it from the United States perspective, we're in danger of overreacting to a possible Chinese um, threat. And we're in danger of um, perhaps prompting the Chinese to increase, in fact, we have their nuclear and conventional forces because of the way that the United States has pivoted or um, swerved and moved forces from the Persian Gulf and Middle East towards the Indo-Pacific Command region. I, I think that's um, something we have to look very carefully at and see whether or not the forces are there now or have been in the past to adequately deter China from taking Taiwan, which would, which would be very risky on their part, and, and try to think about how not to be um, initiating or uh, uh, bolstering an arms race between the United States and China. I think that's an extremely expensive proposition and likely quite risky in the long run. Right. And yet it seems to be, I mean, there seems to be at least a current of thinking out there that a confrontation, a, a, a hot war between China and the United States is almost inevitable. I mean, there's the Thucydides trap by Graham Allison and in, in like today's foreign policy, there's an article by Hal Brands and uh, Michael Beckley about, you know, basically arguing that the, the alarm signals, the alarm uh, lights are sort of flashing red. And there's all these reasons to think that, you know, there's going to be a hot war between the United States and China. And, you know, I mean, you're suggesting that would be a mistaken way to think about things, but clearly people are thinking about these terms, in these terms. And mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think there have been members of the U.S. military who think, you know, that's coming to a neighborhood near you, this hot war, in the next couple of years. Um, I, I think that we can make it so by building up U.S. and allied military forces in the Pacific, by um, engaging in rhetoric, which is hostile, we can ratchet up the conflict that's largely, um, if you think about it, 
in material terms, now rhetorical uh, to much more physical. And we can, um, you know, defend access to the Straits of Malacca, or we can defend access to the Taiwan Straits. We can engage in brushbacks of Chinese ships, and they can engage in brinkmanship with US ships. We can make war happen. That is so. I, I don't disbelieve uh, that the scenarios that that people talk about can't happen. They could, but that's not necessary. Uh, we could engage in diplomacy. We could have uh, a policy that could defend Taiwan that is not provocative. So instead of um, having, uh, you know, nuclear submarines and um, aircraft carriers defending Taiwan, we could bolster the, the Taiwanese air defenses and help them have a kind of defense of de uh, and deterrence by denial. So in other words, what good would it do China to take Taiwan and try to hold it if they can't hold it, right? If they are denied control of the territory, then there's no incentive for them to be aggressive. So that what you have to have is a military and political strategy of denial that is not provocative. So yeah, I, I think, sure, it's possible, and we can make it more likely that we'll go to war to, with China, but it, we don't have to, and we should work in every way to make that much less likely. I think that the, um, this reminds me of the way that people talked about the likelihood of war in the late 19th century, early 20th century in Europe, that war was inevitable, that um, the, there was a reciprocal um, incentive to mobilize. So if France mobilized or, or Germany mobilized or Russia mobilized, then the other side had to mobilize. And uh, there was a buildup of forces. And yes, they made more uh, war more likely through this mindset that it's inevitable. We don't have to go there. Right, and let's hope we don't. Um, in any case, uh, there is another hot war that I sort of started my uh, introduction uh, with, and that is what's going on in Israel-Palestine. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about possible uh, widening of this war. Uh, at first, uh, Biden and Blinken were insisting that they didn't want a wider war, but and, and now there have been attacks on American soldiers, and they felt the need to respond to that and have done so. And, you know, it seems as though there may be more where that's coming from. So I wonder, you know, what's your sense of where this is all going in the Middle East, which, as you say, at some level, the United States wanted to get out of the business of, you know, policing the Middle East for a variety of reasons but now suddenly seems, you know, drawn back in, although in some ways we're, of course, you know, pushing the whole process forward, uh, despite the fact that even Joe Biden has described some of the bombing that the Israelis have done in Gaza as indiscriminate. Well, the war in Gaza is a tragedy. And 
it's a tragedy for the people of Gaza who had um, a regime in Hamas that uh, started this war or from the Hamas perspective, continued the war by escalating it. And the Israelis have responded um, with tremendous and uh, devastating power. The use of force uh, on a scale and a speed that has not been seen in the Middle East um, for a long time. The um, Biden administration from the beginning should have urged restraint. That's a, 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 an opportunity lost. And now to say, um, you know, be more discriminating with the weapons that you use, the choice of targets or the timing of the attack or, um, you know, don't uh, keep going, uh, consider ceasefire, all of this. I'm happy to see it. Um, I wish that there'd been more thought about uh, giving what it means to give the Netanyahu government the green light. Again, I think the dynamics of the conflict um, for both Hamas and for Israel, there's a lot of internal things happening for each side. The reasons why Netanyahu felt both um, empowered and the necessity to react to Hamas in the way he did, not just because he believes Hamas is a threat, but because he has a domestic constituency to his right that wanted uh, dramatic action and to crush and eliminate Hamas. So I think he's got his own concerns about maintaining his very tenuous hold on power. I think he's least to get a government of national unity out of the conflict early, and he wants to maintain this unity. It's fracturing because of the loss of um, the hostages, the deaths of hostages that um, his own forces perpetrated, but also the deaths of hostages who have not been, they've not been able to get released. So it's a tragedy on um, all sides, you know, the, the beginning of the war and its continuation. So, um, so it is, so it is. Yeah. Um, so maybe one final question, which might be, you know, what would you say is the most striking and important finding of the Costs of War project since it was created almost 15 years ago? What, what do we know now that we didn't know before the project was in place? You know, John, I'm not sure that there's any one thing that's that's striking to me other than um, we can think about war in sort of little packages or that, um, you know, focus on little discrete costs um, of conflict. We can say, well, what's the military budget? What's the war budget? Or we can say, how many soldiers were killed? Or we can say, um, how many civilians died during the war? But what the Cost of War project has shown, I think, is that war isn't any one of these discrete things. It's all of it. And um, an important part of understanding war is that the costs of war don't end when the fighting stops. 
that the costs and consequences on the soldiers and on the civilians continue. Uh, infrastructure is destroyed. That means that uh, it will take years sometimes, maybe a decade or more for that infrastructure to be rebuilt for hospitals and roads and water and um, sanitation to come back online. And that itself leads to immiseration and death that uh, the pollution and the greenhouse gases associated with conflict stay beyond the fighting, that uh, the economic toll of paying for war or even not paying for war as the United States did, but borrowing to pay for the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq reverberates through the entire budget and puts pressure on other parts of what governments do um, you know, infrastructure, healthcare, um, education. So what I think we've done is try to give a sort of gestalt picture of the costs and consequences of war. It's not one thing. It's sort of thinking about war more holistically. That's been the aim, and I hope that we've done that. Well, I'd say that's a pretty profound um you know, assertion or claim, uh, you know, not, not perhaps exactly a finding, but something that we should all be thinking about a lot. I mean, it's hard not to look at these pictures coming out of Gaza and not seeing, you know, enormous amounts of just rubble. I mean, how is that cleared away? How do you rebuild everything? It just, and of course, people are on the brink of starvation. I mean, as you say, it is a one kind of enormous, uh, enormous catastrophe. But that's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Nita Crawford of Oxford University for her insights about war and its costs and about contemporary international affairs generally. I also want to thank Osvaldo Meno Aguilar for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for letting us use his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us again for the next episode of International Horizons. Mm-hmm.